Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as Federal Labor Member for Gellibrand, Dad, Dogs Fan, Bibliophile, Author, at Two Futures Book. Authorised, Tim Watts, 97 Geelong Road, hashtag Footscray. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Tim Watts. It's great to be here. Long time listener, first time participant. It's it's excellent that you've made time in your busy schedule to have a chat with me, Tim. I appreciate it no end. Please tell me, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> Usually it's just a g'day, I'm Tim. I find that if you lead with g'day, I'm Tim, your federal member of parliament, um, can be a little bit of a conversational detour. <laughs> Surely it gets to that conversational detour anyway, though, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you quickly realise as a as a member of parliament that it's it's the one job in the world where not only does everyone have an opinion on how well you're doing a job, but they're actually entitled to. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I often sort of dream of being a dentist or something like that. You wouldn't have people coming up to you saying, "Geez, you are a terrible dentist." <laughs> Well, how about you do it this way? <laughs> Look, it would be a curious thing. I mean, at least if nothing else, this is an audio-only podcast, so we don't have to worry about not showing your face on TV. <laughs> oh, I, I could uh, orientate myself with my, my the back of my head to the screen just in case. <laughs> I am always intrigued by people who uh, work in, in the public sphere, particularly uh, politicians, because... I would find, I would imagine that there are very few social settings where you aren't introduced, like there are just going to things where you're not introduced as, and now, you know, please, children applaud the, our local member, Mr. Watts, he's here to talk, you know, or whatever. It's just that you're always, you're always on. Yeah, it's true. Um, it, it can be a little bit awkward at, at settings like, you know, at the school gate when you're dropping your kids off or something like mm. that. Um, there are some times you just, just want to be a dad. Um, but you know, look on the whole, it, it's a great blessing that we live in a democracy like this. I mean, the, the electorate that I represent, we have a, a very large number of people who were forced to flee their, their, their countries of origin to come here precisely to enjoy the freedom to be able to tell their MP that they're not doing a very good job. So, mm. you know, I, I try and look at it through that prism. If, if someone has a go at me, um, at a railway station or at a school gate or at a street stall or something like that. You know, I, I often reflect, saying, you know what, it, we're pretty lucky to live in a country where someone's comfortable enough to really give you a spray um, and not have to worry about, you know, themselves or their family or someone disappearing in the morning. So when you look at it that way, you can, uh, you know, take a positive uh, bent away from <laughs> even the most nasty mm -hmm. feedback. The, the modern-day passion for politics is surely a double-edged sword, though, because we have so much interest, more probably than I think we've ever had before. And certainly social media and the internet only add to that because there is both an expectation and uh, a determination from the parties. We need to cover that off to, to send our message out, to get it out to everybody in as many ways as we can. But then the flip side is, of course, that because we're doing all of this and everybody wants to know everything, then everybody wants to be able to feed that back or wants to have their opinion, rightly or wrongly, formed on policy, whether they've interpreted it correctly or otherwise. Yeah, it, it's certainly a, a dramatically changed environment. 
Um, I don't go as far to say whether it's a, a better or worse environment, but you know, if you take my, my predecessor in Jellybrand, Ralph Willis, when he was in the, the Keating government, the, the media environment that he confronted was, was very different. You, know, you had um, a, a strong majority of Australians following politics um, on mm. a daily basis through newspapers and through the, uh, the, the nightly news coverage. Now, that meant that everyone was getting uh, you know, a, a broadly similar uh, frame of debate. You, know, you, you might have been hearing, you might have been hear, emphasising different things in your own mind, but you're sort of broadly hearing the same parameters of debate. You know, today, mm. what, what social media has done is it's really um, atomised the political debate a lot. Um, you know, Twitter, I, I love it. I was an early adopter. I was on there in, in 2006. So, you know, I've been doing it for much longer as a non-MP than as an MP. Um, but in the political debate, despite some optimistic projections early on, we really have splintered into different spheres of debate. And that, that's something that you really need to um, keep an eye on, I think, if you care about the health of our public sphere. I don't necessarily want to make this a, a political conversation. I really want to find out about you. I do want to just question you based on something that you raised before. You said that the area that you represent, there's a number of people who uh, have now settled in Australia, formerly fled their country because of whatever reason, and obviously sought asylum here, found that opportunity. We're in no less a different situation, yet we're dealing with those people in a drastically different fashion. How do your constituents feel about that? Uh, my, my electorate is, is broadly representative of the Australian um, attitude to this. It, it's, it's fairly divided. Um, there are strong views one way in the inner suburbs of my electorate and strong views the other way in the outer suburbs. What I would say, though, is that there is a, a very, very large Vietnamese Australian community in my electorate, and they're very conscious of their, their heritage as an asylum-seeking community. Um, but there is a little bit of, uh, of rewriting of history about the way that community arrived in Australia. Um, the United Nations Human Rights Commission set up a, a regional processing arrangement to, to deal with the Indo-Chinese asylum crisis, and that arrangement mm -hmm. included offshore processing at places like Palo Bidong in, in Malaysia. Uh, I've got a picture of that island in my, electorate office, in, my office in Parliament, actually, to, to keep that front of mind, and also mm -hmm. at, in Galang Island in Indonesia, and there were boat turnbacks to those islands, not by Australia, but by um, other countries in the region. So that was, and, and that, was a, that was a solution that won the UNHCR a Nobel Peace Prize, um, and, and it worked. And Australia has been an enormous beneficiary, and those seeking asylum have been an enormous beneficiary. So there is a way through this issue. I think we kind of know what the, the, the parameters of it look like. But unfortunately, in a, in a heated political contest, um, people who want to talk about that that nuanced solution gets sort of cut to bits between the stop the boat slogan on the one side and the let them come, let them stay slogan mm -hmm. on the other side. Um, you know, that the reality of how to deal with this in a humane, um, effective way uh, is a lot more complicated, unfortunately. And the, the, I think the difficult thing is that because of that nuance, it is lost in the conversation. It's not helped by... The perception, I think, in the public, whether it's amplified by media or misconception or truth, that we have what we have right now in how we process it, uh, in, as in how we process the situation and the dealing with asylum seekers, it just doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything other than we've put people there and there's no asylum seekers coming in. Now, I know that there are, it's just that they're not necessarily coming out of the places where we're putting them now. No, that, 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 that's, that's right. 
um, but that's a function of government policy. Um, when Scott Morrison was Immigration Minister, he flat out stopped processing, processing asylum seeker applications for, in, until Reza Brady's death, frankly. Um, it, it's no surprise that, that people were driven to um, uh, you know, extreme desperation in, in that context. Um, but that's not Labor's policy. I mean, we've spoken about doubling our asylum seeker intake. We've spoken about increasing our contribution to the UNHCR to $450 million. But the reality is, is that there are more than 50 million people see, who have been displaced uh, at the moment, according to the UNHCR. Mm. Around 12 million of them require permanent resettlement. So no one country can resolve that. As soon as you sort of, as soon as you acknowledge that, it becomes a conversation about who to say no to and how to say no to them. And, and I, I find that appalling still to this day because these are people who are in genuine fear for their life, who are genuinely fleeing persecution. Yeah. But we can't help them. We can't help everyone. I mean, I, there is a large African community in Melbourne's West, and, and most of mm. them come from places like Dadad, which is a refugee camp in northern Kenya, that there are still more than 300,000 people in. And you know, a good mate of mine spent 18 years at Dadad. You know, he, he had no way of, 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 of just by financial and geographic luck, frankly, he had no way of getting on a boat. Um, that yep. doesn't mean that he is any more deserving of our protection than someone who, who does arrive here, um, who, who, who has those geographic and, um, and financial um, options. But, you know, the, the reality is, is that this is a global problem that we need to try and, and apply some equality of opportunity onto. We need to do our share, I think, is, is where it sits. I don't think there's any expectation within the broader Australian populace to say, let's take everybody. Um, and, and, I, and I even think, honestly, that flinging wide the gates isn't necessarily what everybody wants either. I think that we need to be measured about it. However, the thing that hurts us is that there are so many people struggling and so many people in need of help. And to reflect on something that Noni Hazelhurst said at the Logies of all places on Sunday night, our hearts are, are growing colder. Yeah. I, look, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, and I, I speak about this issue, you know, literally every day I'd speak about it multiple times with constituents. Mm. I don't think Australians' hearts are, uh, are harder. I think if you talk with Australians, if you can get 20 minutes with any Australian, I think you can talk them to a position of, of, of a reasonable middle ground on this issue. And that, that middle ground is... We are in, at an unprecedented level of humanitarian need at the moment. It's the highest level since after the Second World War. We need to be doing vastly more to assist people in need at the moment. But there is still, you'll never talk people around to a point of view where our borders aren't controlled, where, where people yeah. are, are coming in an unconstrained way. You'll just never get anyone to accept that. So that's why I'm, I'm very happy to talk about Labor's position. Oh, there's practicalities around that. We need to. Yeah, I mean, and... And not only that, but not only officially open, but, you know, open as a result of our policies. I mean, there are people respond to incentives, unfortunately, and, and I would do the mm -hmm. same if I was in that situation. We, it's interesting. There's not a lot of appreciation about how the world is different today than in the 70s, for example. You know, like cheap transportation costs, um, ubiquitous communications technologies, uh, social media, the internet, mm. means that people can move vastly more easily today than they, than they could in the 70s. And, and that really does have implications for the way we think about something like immigration. Now, none of that, I should rush to say, none of that justifies what we've seen going on in, in Manus and Nauru recently. I mean, mm. that the lack of oversight and the lack of transparency there has, I think, 
caused I mean the mind boggles it, it really does I, I find it difficult mm. to talk about it because it's just it's just so indefensible so that we don't turn this into the wonks of Twitter can I encourage you and particularly the Labour Party to, to talk some more about that in the appropriate forums when you've got the chance I know you've got a stump speeches and the rest of it we've got hell of an election campaign ahead of us um I th- just in some of the stuff you told me there was stuff that I didn't know. Now, I think of myself as fairly politically educated, but I didn't know that Labor's policy was X and Y in a couple of those situations. It doesn't solve the problem, but it acknowledges that Labor are intending to do something, and I think that that is only going to help. Yeah, I, I hear you, and, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the changed media environment, right? So when we say this is a, a complex international problem that requires half a dozen, well, more than half a dozen, you know, dozens of, of different policy interventions, that's much less likely to get up in a, in a news story than someone saying, stop the boats, let them stay. That, that yeah. we're, we're sort of caught between these two extreme positions. I, I talk about this issue a lot in Parliament, and I, I find that, as I say, if you can get 20 minutes with someone, you can sort of step through these issues, and, you know, this, this is a complex issue. People of good faith can yes. and will disagree. Um, but you can get to a position where, you know, there are certain fundamentals that we can agree on and, you know, not treating people in our care in an appalling way is a fundamental, um, providing more assistance in, at a time of, you know, of unparalleled international need, that's not a negotiable. Um, and, you know, you sort of go from there. But I, I hear you. This is, it's a really hard one to talk uh, to large groups of people about. Sure out of frustration surely we would save money putting those detention centers and processing centers on australian soil so that anyway blah 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 tim i i uh, yes i I appreciate it i I feel the same way about this issue that 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 uh, 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 that sound you're making there (laughs) i feel that believe me anytime i talk about this that's the, the 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 feeling that i that i have and I'm not charging it, charging you with it being your problem. I acknowledge that you're part of the machine, though, that is much closer than I am to being able to fix this. So I please know that I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I'm sure I will cop heat for not going very hard on the, the Labor minister, whatever. Um, this is a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your, your candour in the situation. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, it's just, it's a... Uh... It's a difficult, nuanced conversation. Yeah, that breath, that speaks thousands. <laughs> yeah. So what challenges you then, Tim? What challenges me? Yes. You asked that question after that conversation? Off the back of that, that's exactly <laughs> right. I, I, I find my job extremely challenging, weighing up those, those conflicting um, those, those com- conflicting interests and priorities is really hard, you know, like... How much uh, do you put on X and how much do you put on Y? That's really tricky. But the, the balancing act's not just in the in the in the public life. I mean, I I find that the hardest part of my job is balancing my job as an MP with my job as a dad and a husband. Mm. You know, I mean, people don't realise, but I'm a backbencher without any specific portfolio responsibility. And you know, I spend what 22, 23 weeks a year in Canberra. When I'm in my electorate, I have an agreement with my family that I aim not to be out more than three nights a week. But in reality, it's mostly sort of three to four nights a week. Um, you know, every day on a weekend, you're doing something. Now, mm. you know, 
when you have a, a five-year-old daughter who, who bursts into tears when she hears you're going to Canberra work instead of Footscray work, like that, that's challenging. That's really challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. But you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an internal discipline to make sure that what you're doing counts. You know, it, it wouldn't be worth the sacrifices this job if I didn't feel like I was doing something that, that mattered in the long term and that mattered in a really big way to the things that I care about, the things that I want to change about this country. What's your current pet I want to change project? Oh, schools. I mean, <laughs> schools, schools, schools. That, that, mm. I think if you ask most Labor members of Parliament, you, the majority would say schools. Um, I mean, I, I represent an extremely diverse electorate. Um, there are some schools that are doing really well, some schools that are really struggling. Um, but, but importantly, they, they're, they're struggling because we don't have an education system that really puts the focus on needs at the moment. So, mm. you know, Labor's policy, and not to get political, but, you know, that's what Gonski's all about. It, it's about funding schools according to the needs of their kids. So if you've got kids from a, a poorer background, if you've got kids from a non-English speaking background, if you've got kids with special needs, if you've got kids from an Indigenous mm. background, you know, guess what? It, it costs more to give them the same level yeah. of education as someone with all the advantages. And, you know, I, I walk into some of the schools in my electorate and... I mean, I'm public educator as well. I was educated in a country public school. And it was a real shock to me when I, I got to university and, and saw some of the opportunities that kids at, at better off schools had had that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and so that, that, that's, a, that's a real drive for me, um, making sure yeah. that every kid in Australia has that equality of opportunity, both economic and social. And, and that, that means we need to fund our schools according to that. How country school was your education? <laughs> I um, ask that. Like, the differential is that, like, you could have gone to, to Dubbo High, for example, that's still country, or, you know, you could have gone to um, small public school where you were in the grade four, five, six, seven composite class. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I grew up in Toowoomba, in, and, mm. and that's a, a town that's oh, the not... The Bible Belt. Now, Bible Belt, yeah. Lyle Shelton, same town. That, yes, that was where I grew up. So um, it, it was... You know, it's a city of 100,000 people, but it's got a really a country mentality. Um, mm. and, and my family was really a family of the land. So my, my father's an agricultural engineer. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather was the first member for Darling Downs in, in the 1860s. Great. He was a member of the squatocracy. Um, and, we, you know, we still have his diaries at that time, and they make fascinating reading, frankly, <laughs> um, particularly about relations with the Indigenous community. Oh, um, I can imagine. Actually, that's an interesting segue, actually, because, um, you know, he was a member of the first Queensland Parliament. That, that's a parliament that those pre-federation parliaments passed a whole range of, of laws designed to sort of, you know, push out the, uh, the, the Chinese-Australian mm. community from the hearts of those communities. And, you know, when my ancestor arrived in Australia, the, the size of the Chinese community, Chinese-born Chinese community in Australia, was about the same as it is today, about 2%. Um, and those parliaments passed a whole series of laws restricting who Chinese-Australians could marry, you know, where they could travel, the kind of jobs that they could do. And, and that was a big driver of our federation, frankly. The, the first piece of legislation passed by the Federation Parliament was the White Australia Act. I, yeah. I take a lot of satisfaction from that because my wife's a Chinese Australian. My, my kids are, you know, half seventh generation Australian, half first generation Chinese Australian. Um, and to think that they're, that, you know, six generations later, their, their ancestor uh, who was passing laws um, trying to discriminate against them um, you know, now mm. there's a, a member of parliament trying to build a better Australia. It, there's, 
there's so much that is uh, not widely known about the the particularly Chinese migration into Australia in our history, isn't there? Uh, and the reasons for that happening, and and the the fact that it wasn't just because Australia was a new country or a rich country; it was opportunity, it was the gold rush, it was all sorts of things. Oh, absolutely, and and it's interesting though that the, the Chinese history of Australia is everywhere as long as you look for it. You know, so yeah. Kathy Freeman has Chinese ancestors because Chinese Australians are pushed to the margins of those communities where yeah. Indigenous Australians are pushed to. And, and they kind of hide in plain sight, you know, like Jeff from the Wiggles, Chinese Australian. Um, Dan Kelly from the Kelly Gang um, spoke Cantonese when he was growing up because he hung around the other Cantonese-speaking kids um, in, in regional Victoria where they grew up. Um, you know, the, 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 the kid who came up with the idea at the 1954 Melbourne Olympics that all the nations should march together, not as individual nations in the closing ceremony, was a Chinese Australian kid. A, a Chinese Australian kid living in the era of the White Australia policy. Um, so, you know, and Billy Singh, one of our most decorated Anzacs, is a, a Chinese mm. Australian. So you, if you look hard enough, they're everywhere because they're a part of our history. They're, they're, they're part of the Australian identity. So I really take it seriously as a, as a member of parliament to, you know, to, to frankly pick those culture wars. You know, John Howard understood yeah. the the power of culture wars and how important they are to shaping political identity because it, it is something that's politically constructed um, and I think we ought to talk more about it because, you know, the, the Australia of uh, the Federation Parliament was a very different place than the Australia today and we are a vastly greater yeah. nation today than we were then. We're talking a lot about politics. <laughs> yeah, we have. It's still, look, it's almost inevitable. I, I hesitate to say we're a far better country for it too. That yeah, you know, we're much broader, much more diverse, oh, and we're we're wealthier and we're happier, and yeah. you know it doesn't matter what the measure you take. We're a vastly greater nation, and 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 you know I, I don't shy away from that, and that's why I'm, I'm I think that the republic shouldn't just be a a kind of a, a an updating or a soulless kind of a swapping a governor general for an Australian. Like I think we should use it as a, a moment of national sovereignty to really explore our identity and you know ask yep. what having the Union Jack on our flag. Um, what, whether that represents us anymore. You know, what does that say to Asian Australians whose ancestors grew up under colonial governments or mm. to Indigenous Australians who were dispossessed under that flag? You know, that Paul Keating used to say, no great nation could ever have the flag of another country on its flag. And I'll tell you, that, that kind of uh, that Aussie except, exceptionalism, that, that Aussie parochialism, that, that's in my DNA. Like, I reckon we are the best country on earth and we ought to mm. celebrate it. What, look, if we don't have the Union Jack at the top corner of the flag, Tim, what are we going to do come Australia Day when people need capes? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of the sanctity of the flag, isn't it? I mean, I, I wasn't used when uh, George Christensen introduced his private members bill uh, criminalising the burning of the Australian flag and, you know, because we should have respect for this flag, etc. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, that he was wearing like that kind of... Uh, uh, you know the silk version of the Australian flag as a t-shirt, as a as a button-up shirt. I mean, it's you know a big Kev-style flash shirt. I just think, oh, wow, yeah. come on. <laughs> I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> what for you is a source of strength? Oh, family. Yeah, and family is. It's the the constant, isn't it? Um, and, and that's why it's so challenging trying to, to, to balance all that. Um, my, my, I mean, most of my family don't want to be in the public eye, so it's a bit difficult to talk about 
them as a, as sure. a source of strength publicly, but, but that's a big one. Um, I, I also take a lot of strength from literature. You know, I, I, I think it's really important to invest, invest in, you know, your emotional soul a lot. And, and mm. you know, literature is the, 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 the greatest artistic form <laughs> in my view, just to, 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 to piss off every other artist out there. Um, so I, I really make a priority of that in my life to, um, to have time to, to really invest in that part of my life. Literature second only to podcasting. <laughs> well, Mark, the, the, the Tolstoy of podcasters. Oh, you have no idea how much I'm trying to make this my Anna Karenina. <laughs> well, I mean, look, that's a great example. Right? So, so Tolstoy famously asked, you know, like um, about the, the, the beggars in, the, in the, the Moscow underground, you know, what, what then shall we do? You know, that, that's something that, that I dwell on a lot. You know, I mean, what, do you, what is the, the, the biggest impact that you can have on inequality and injustice in our society and, and, and balancing off those you know, the, the dealing with the injustice that's immediately in front of you against thinking about what the consequences of dealing with that immediate injustice are to, you know, the greater injustice um, around society. Like, that, that's just as true today as it was when, when Tolstoy was writing about it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good example of how prioritising you know, non-fiction, uh, sorry, f- fiction um, writing can unlock things in the, in the political debate, I think. And clearly the, the correct and most facetious response is give them two microphones, a recording device and an iTunes account. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I do worry a little bit about my kids, you know, like I, I grew up surrounded by the, the books of my parents mm. and my family and my, my grandparents and, you know, I sort of was able to pull them off the shelf whenever I wanted and, you know, have a really self-directed engagement with with books and, you know, Every time I buy another ebook, I do have this thing of guilt, you know, that this is not something that my kids are going to be able to pick up and, and have a flick through themselves. So, But in, in the, the glorious uh, realms of digital age and the rest of it now, that it, nothing is, oh, sorry, everything is forever, you buying that ebook has given the author some income and has allowed every yeah, probably person. Not as much to as come... in- income as they would have gotten if I got a hard copy. That is very true. Although the making of those things is obscene. Uh, but it allows every one of your progeny to be able to read and share that and pass it down forever without having to worry about degradation. This is true. This is true. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when you look at the, the, the research on, on educational outcomes, just how big a role parents play, um, mm. you know, like just in instilling that, that love of reading. I mean, you, you were talking about the, the challenges of balancing things earlier. Like my one non-negotiable is if, if I'm in Melbourne, I, I'm reading to my kids that night. So, yep. you know, between the hours that my kids go to bed, um, that, that I'm at home and, and I read to them every night and, you know, do the phonics and all that with, with my younger one who's still learning to read. And, you know, initially the, the community groups found that a bit peculiar, but, you know, I'd sort of say, well, I won't be there then, but I'll, I'll get there later. But... You know, it's interesting. It, eventually, the kind of the message gets through, and then and, and the reason for it is, is acknowledged. So, yeah. And just a reminder: it's pronounced Seinfeld. <laughs> it does allow me to ask this question. It does tail in in part to a, a very excellent speech you gave recently. Uh, what is your favourite TV show, Tim? My favourite TV show. 
Mm, no, it's a cliche to say the wire, isn't it? I mean, I, I think that that is the, oh. the, the the televisual Tolstoy of our times. Um, I, I, I really like <laughs> I really like Borgen. Um, mm. What was that? Though? There was that Norwegian one recently uh, about the uh, occupation, about the Russians invading Norway. That was great. Um, oh, yeah. Sticking with Game of Thrones, I think that's that's fantastic. Yep. I won't have any spoilers on this podcast now in case people are catching up. Oh, if, look, if they haven't watched it, it's their loss, quite frankly. <laughs> it's tricky, though, because in my line of work, I, I frankly can't watch any TV live other than the news. Sure. Um, so unless it's streaming, unless it's on demand, I just I just can't watch it, which means I kind of watch a lot less reality TV now than I did back in the day. How good has technology made that experience, though, for you? In that, in the old days, it was I either need to have a VCR, you know, in my unit in Canberra or back at home, just churning up the things of things I want to keep watching. Nowadays, oh, I've just got an account, and as long as I've got the internet, I'm in business. Yeah, it's sensational. I mean, particularly for someone who travels all the time, like me. You know, my iPad's in the in the backpack, and you know, you can catch up whenever you want. It's interesting the way that I. I, I just after I was pre-selected, I was talking to, to Ralph Willis about, you know, what life was like as an MP, and he sort of said, oh, look, you know, just, you basically never see your kids. <laughs> like, that's the hardest part. <laughs> I thought, geez, that's not, that's not encouraging. Um, <laughs> that's right. I spoke to, to Nicola Roxon, who was my immediate predecessor, and she just laughed, said, oh, it's not quite that bad. You know, technology's changed things a lot, and, and it has, you know, like I, every breakfast I FaceTime with the, the, the kids and, and, and my wife, mm-hmm. and you know that that can be a little bit chaotic, being the uh, you know the uh, disembodied head um, <laughs> at the breakfast. The screen table. at the end of the table. Yeah, getting a getting a three year old to listen to you even when you're in the room is difficult. But um, <laughs> at least you can be a, a presence, even if it's a disembodied digital presence. Oh yeah, very much so. I struggle in the same way. I travel a lot for my work currently, particularly internationally for me, and that means. Uh, you know, weird hour phone calls and but FaceTiming and those sorts of things have just made up for, it doesn't make up for it, but it helps deal with the, the distance, the tyranny of distance and time so much better. Uh, I couldn't do the job I do today without having the ability to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not perfect, but, but it helps. I mean, I, look, it's interesting. People sort of want to go to an extreme with technology. You know, they want to sort mm-hmm. of say, oh, this is the answer to all our problems or or it is the kind of the moral panic that's going to destroy the foundations of civilization as we know it. But, you know, technology is just a tool. It's an imperfect tool. Um, it can make our life a lot better in a lot of ways and can make our life a lot more painful in a lot of other ways. It just depends what you do with it. That's the opening description to my resume. <laughs> what, that I'm an a exciting tool. tool. Yeah, dangerous <laughs> tool. Anyway. What is the most exciting or dangerous thing you've ever done? Hmm. The most dangerous thing I've ever done, like a string of misguided bad decisions as a teenager come to mind. (laughs) 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 But probably parking them in case there's anyone listening to this podcast 10 years in the future is trying to look for dirt on me. Uh, (laughs) The the thing that comes to mind most readily as as a dangerous thing is so last year I went over to Afghanistan and, and the Middle East to, to stay with Australian soldiers who are still serving um, mm. in, in, in Afghanistan and, and the Middle East region. And and that was a an eye-opening experience. We, the, so the Australian Parliament has like, it's effectively an exchange program where you can go stay 
on barracks in the same accommodation, in the same mess halls, et cetera, with, mm-hmm. with, with serving ADF members. And it's designed to sort of, you know, in, give a bit of insight both ways into what's like, what, what life's like. And, yeah, I can tell you, driving around the streets of Kabul, you know, even though we were travelling in a Bushmaster that no one's ever been killed in a Bushmaster, an Australian-made um, uh, armoured vehicle, you feel it. You really do. And, and you know, I was talking to one of the other MPs in, in the car as we were driving through, so I was saying, geez, well, we can't be too worried because if, if, if an MP got killed, you know, how many people would get sacked as a result? You know, like the people have a strong incentive to make sure that we are safe here. Yes. But you feel it. Um, and and that's, that's what our, our ADF members must feel every day serving over there. It's, yeah, it really hits home, particularly when you're doing the, um, the inbound training about, you know, how to mm. tie, um, tie off a, 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 a limb that's been torn off and things like that in a room that's overseen by the pictures of all of the Australian servicemen who have been killed over there. It, I mean, I've done a lot of OH&S training in corporations before and, you know, Never had that. Oh yeah, you know, you you sort of you roll the eyes at the PowerPoint, and you you maybe five percent of your attention is being paid. You know. But but in an environment like that, it, it, it's very real. It's very real, particularly when um, you paying attention matters more to the person sitting next to you because you're the one that's going to be trying to save their life if something goes wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's a funny one. They 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 did some. Um, uh, some sort of real life training for us like they had an exercise mm-hmm. about how what to do if there was a an IED attack and you know so they simulated the whole thing and yep and um halfway along they simulated it with something that's gone on behind us and sort of we had to go and you know implement this training and there was this poor girl that we subsequently under learned was from the operations department like the accounts department basically who you know, covered in tomato sauce and, you know, the, the uniform's cut up yep. and, you know, we had to do all the, the, the business on her. But, but part of what you need to do is you need to move them 50 yards from where the, the attack happened in, in order to be, to be safe effectively and to, mm. to do the first aid. So I, I had to drag this poor girl and I'm sure they tried to find the smallest um, serving <laughs> ADF member there, but I had to drag her 50 yards across gravel and rocks and all this oh. crap in Kabul and... You know, when they cut her pants off to do the um, to do the the, the, the real medical treatment, I, I'd done her more damage than that simulation started with, unfortunately. <laughs> so that was not a not a high point of my life as a as an MP. I felt pretty bad after that. I'm sure she didn't think that was what was going to happen when she turned up at the office that morning. Yeah, I can imagine not. G- given that we have some of the best, you know, some of the finest soldiers in the world uh, representing us as a nation, why? Do you think is it that we seem to lack the I don't know if it, the community wide respect or maybe the over the top respect that say the Americans show to their armed services? Certainly, we all turn out for Anzac Day and we show great amounts of respect, and that's wonderful. But then in the day to day, week to week stuff, like I, I work with a lot of Americans, ex servicemen and women, and we go places, and I'm always hearing thank you for your service to those people. Um, you know, if they're in uniform or if they're doing those, it's just amazing. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, right? So it, one of the things that, that struck us when we were staying um, in, in Afghanistan in the Middle East is that, you know, we're frequently co-located with the Yanks. Mm. And every American serviceman who bumped into us was just agog that you'd have a, 
elected member of parliament, you know, staying in barracks with the troops. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that this is not something that congressmen or, or senators uh, deigned to do in the US. So, you know, that there's there's respect and there's respect, I think. Um, you know, we're a pretty uh, low-key culture. Um, mm. we, we don't sort of go in for the demonstra- over-the-top demonstrable sort of signs of things. And I think probably most servicemen would be just as embarrassed as the person saying it if they sort of started with the whole sort of, you know, thank you for your service type thing. But, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that we spent more commemorating the First World War than the POMs did. You know, we, we, our, our turnouts at Anzac Day, mm. I mean, and that, that's a, it's a funny thing, you know, when you become a member of Parliament, your, your day, your Anzac Day changes significantly because, you know, you're from, you're trying to get around to all of the RSLs, they're all having services, and there are thousands of, of everyday Australians across, the, you know, in my electorate alone who turn out for it. So, you know, you, you extrapolate those figures out nationwide. So I think that respect is there. It's just not not, not shouted with a megaphone like the Yanks are, are want to do. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, but, that's but, you great. know, look, we, we, are, we are in the same boat as the Yanks in, in not looking after servicemen when they come back. Um, you know, the, the work that Ben Quilty did as the as the, uh, the official uh, artist of the, the ADF, I think has shone a really big spotlight on that. And, mm. Something we need to do a lot better at. Yeah, absolutely. I will offer and agree as a counterpoint that the way we, we could certainly treat our returned servicemen and women better, we do a dramatically better job of it, however, than some of our American counterparts. Um, again, travelling to America quite frequently, I see lots of, you know, returned servicemen begging at stoplights, looking for work, looking for anything. Um that's yeah. That's just a whole other mess, but not what we will dwell on now. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I lived in the states for a while um, when I was studying, and you do see that it's really confronting. It's a it's a confronting mm. reminder of of the, the kind of nation that we've built. You know, a, a nation where you know there there is disadvantage um, and there is inequality, um, but we don't let people fall through the cracks in the same way as the Yanks do. It, it, it's, and that's not something that happened by accident. I mean, you know, people talk about healthcare in the US. Well, universal healthcare was a hard slog in Australia. You know, we, the Labor Party took that to the 69 election, to the 72 election, to the 74 election. Um, and it wasn't, it really wasn't until the 87 election before the Libs gave up trying to overtly destroy it. Now they just destroy it through the back door. But, you know, like that. It took a long time to bed that town as, as something that was a, a third rail in Australian politics. So the, the kind of country we live in is a function of, of a lot of hard work from a lot of people. We are in an election campaign now, almost allegedly, officially. I'm not sure the writs have been issued, but we're almost there. Um, the parliament has been dissolved. We're staring down the 45th after the 2nd of July. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months, Tim? Have you got a plan B? Plan B. <laughs> well, I, this is when I tell you about the, the hundred positive policies that the opposition <laughs> that we're going to well, be implementing um, if we get the chance to uh, to, to, to win um, on on July two. Um, yeah, look, I mean, my next twelve months depends a hell of a lot on what happens on July two. Mm. Um, it, it's again, being an MP is not your sort of your usual kind of job. Everything gets very contingent on on you know political and electoral uh, contingencies so 
it's really hard to plan ahead. I've planned a holiday <laughs> in the week after the election, <laughs> my family a break. But, mm. but beyond that, it, it, it's really hard to say. You're in a reasonably safe seat, though, in that you're not going to toss it away. You haven't announced that you're not standing. You you are seeking re-election. Oh, absolutely. I was, I was only elected in, in September 2013, um, so I still feel like I'm in the apprentice stage of, um, of being an MP. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a sliding doors type situation. I mean, mm. my, my life as a, as a member of parliament would be very different if we were in government compared to if we are in opposition, you know, as, frankly, would the life of my constituents. You know, we, we lost 2,500 jobs when the Toyota Altona plant announced that it closed. Mm. Uh, we lost another 1,400 at the Williamstown shipyards. You know, they're both decisions of government that cost thousands of jobs in my electorate, and you can't go to the schools around those sites and not meet kids whose whose parents are you know, facing losing their job, you know, having facing redundancy. Mm. Like, and that that the research shows that the kids whose parents have gone through a redundancy like that feel the effects of it for many years to come. So, yeah, so that that my life, the life of my constituents, um, that it changes. As, I mean, elections matter. They they they, they really do. Yep. There has never been a more exciting time to be an Australian politician, Tim. And uh, I know <laughs> that over the next six, seven weeks when this is published, that we're going to see and hear a lot of posturing, a lot of hopefully truth, a lot of stuff that just is straight out not true. Uh, and, you know, stuff that's coded in half-truths around us. How do we cut through that? How do we really hear or, or get the right picture? Uh, I, I think I think a lot of it starts with just treating each other as human beings. Uh, well, what I say, what I mean by that is that, you know, so I, I've had the experience of being on Twitter before and after being an MP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was on Twitter for, you know, probably, what, 2006 through to, to, to 20, 2013 without being a, a public figure. And, and I loved it because, you know, you could, you could bat ideas backwards and forward. You could you just ask a genuine question saying, I don't understand this. How's that work? Um, you could say, you, you could allow for, for nuance and for uncertainty, you know, and you just can't do that as an MP. It, it, mm. It's amazing how differently people interact with you once you're a member of Parliament. But partly because, you know, there's all the kind of the gotcha stuff and, and people are always trying to read something into what you're saying. But also because people sort of bring this this weighted baggage um, with them to interacting with you, you know, like there, there's this sort of view of like, oh, if you're a Labor MP, that means X Y Z about you. Um, it, it's it's kind of implicit, you know, and therefore you will think in this way or you will respond in that way. So I mean, I I try and always cut through that with people. Try and I, I have a general rule in life, you know, like just give people three chances, you know, like you might have stumbled on someone on a bad day or this might be a particularly red-hot issue for them, you know, whatever, and that, that, might, that might lead them to interact with you in a way that, that's not conducive to having a, a, a genuine conversation like a human being. So I'll always sort mm. of go back to people and sort of try and work it through. But there are a large number of people who, who don't want to participate in that, who just, you know, they, 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 they would rather be throwing grenades over the, um, over the dugout. In, instead of trying to have a human interaction, so that's what I always aim for. I mean, I always, on the campaign trail, I always aim to to interact with with another person, not as kind of you know the 
the, the latest body coming to me on an industrial processing line of, of electioneering. Mm. You know, it's like, yep. well, who is this human being sitting across me? Like, what, what, what matters to them? What makes them tick? Thank you, Tim. And, I really and, appreciate it. And on that it. note, let, let me just finish on that note by saying that if you are interested in the, the, the infinite diversity of the human experience, like there is no better job on earth than being a member of parliament because <laughs> you get to see all the weird and wonderful different passions people have every day of the week. You know, like in, in, in my electorate, we've got, you know, the, the mouth organ band in Yarraville that's been doing it for decades and decades. We've got the snuff puppets, so the, these giant puppet troop in Footscray. You know, there's a Finnish club out in, in Altona who's trying to build a sauna. Um, you know, you, you can go up to Sunshine and, and talk to people who have, you know, handed down these recipes for fur for generation to generation from Vietnam before they hit Melbourne. Um, there's a bloke around the corner from my, my, my house who's been making cannoli and Footscray since he was selling them to people who were travelling in to the Melbourne Olympics in 1954. You know, yeah. like, it's a real privilege being an MP, getting to see that, to getting to interact with that, getting to, 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 mm. to you know... It's a privilege to, 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 to hear those stories. The Melbourne Olympics were in 1956, weren't they? 56. Oh, you, you got, gotcha. <laughs> no, no, no. Just, I just had a moment where I went, well, it's all right. I'm still caught back on the snuff puppets and hoping that that's not what I think it is and something far more appropriate. The, the, the snuff puppets, uh, they are awesome. Look them up online. Um, some of their puppets are, uh, let me put it this way, the kind of puppets that you wouldn't voluntarily get photographed next to as a member of parliament. Could lead to uh, a, 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 a mis- misunderstanding, um, but but you know they are a, we have a deep tradition of the arts in Melbourne's West, and and, and I, I really love them. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate your valuable time today. Please know the things you've said today are very special, and you're highly valued. Thank you, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, as I say, I, I love the podcast. It, it feels a lot like being an MP sometimes, just uh, hearing all these. Uh, these weird and wonderful uh, peccadilloes that people have and, and, and approaches to life and the way people think about things. So uh, I think you're a great crumpet. Thank you, sir. I'll have to get some more weirder and some more wonderful people on. <laughs> uh, very clearly, you're on Twitter. Are there any other social accounts you want to admit to? Oh, I'm everywhere. Um, Instagram at Tim Watts MP, on Facebook at Tim Watts MP. Um, you know, all the ones that are now defunct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I am known as an MP who engages online as well. So, you know, if you've got a question, sing out. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Tim Watts MP is indeed human.